Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is Joshua, week number one, the first part of our preparation for it. Well, today begins a new chapter in the ministry of Torah class as we begin to study the book of Joshua. Joshua is a natural continuation of the Torah from a historical aspect. Because the, the words, the final words of Deuteronomy record the death of Moses and the handing off of Israel's human leadership to Joshua, son of Nun. But the book of Joshua is also a natural continuation of the theological and the spiritual essence of the five books of Moses because we see that what was established and ordained by the Lord through Moses begins to come to fruition. And the immediate fruition was the placing of God's people into God's promised land, Canaan. Now, because we've spent almost five years studying the five books of Moses, Torah, it seems right to me that we spend at least a couple of sessions preparing to transition out of the Torah and into the book of Joshua, the first of that section of the Bible that Jews call the former prophets. Studying the Torah in the manner that we have can at times cause us not to see the forest because of the trees. Right? Um, we can miss the big picture and the beautiful flow of the Bible's progressive revelation if we don't stop sometimes and pause and catch our breath. Okay. So let's climb into the gondola of a heavenly balloon and float up and for a while, high above that wondrous work that the Lord has done, let's view it as a panorama of the whole. Now I've mentioned before that in one sense the entire Tanakh, the Old Testament, is the history of Israel. Why Israel was created, who created it, what its immediate purpose was, what its ultimate purpose is. And it's the skeleton. The Tanakh is the skeleton to which the flesh of the entire Bible clings. Without our understanding of the Israelite skeleton as the framework and foundation of our faith, the soft and malleable flesh of the New Testament can take on practically any form. And indeed it has. Okay. Thus we see literally thousands of Christian denominations established, each with its own set of faith doctrines, each certain that it has become the exclusive standard bearer of God's truth to the exclusion of all the others. I'm so grateful that the Lord has finally starting to open the eyes of his beloved church that Israel is not some obsolete dispensation that's been replaced by a group of faithful Gentiles. Okay. Rather, Israel and its history embodies and exemplifies God's ideal 
principles and values and justice system. Okay. It's those principles, those values, that justice system that produced our Messiah, Yeshua, and who also filled them in a way that has brought about the possibility of redemption for mankind and peace with God. Okay. I mean, I marvel at how fortunate of a generation we are to be eyewitnesses to the fulfillment of prophecies that were foretold thousands of years ago. It is but historical fact that fulfillment of biblical prophecy ceased upon the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple by the Roman legions in 70 AD and it did not begin again until the mid-1940s of, of our modern era. And during that almost 1900 year period of time that started not long after Christ's death, there was this extended period of what I would call prophetic dormancy. And it was that long dormancy that caused many to lose faith and to begin to reinterpret the prophecies allegorically. Okay, in ways that have led to all sorts of erroneous doctrines that are now deeply embedded in Christianity. The worst of them being what's called replacement theology. Okay, but we're living in an, during the era that the prophetic dominoes are falling once again. And they're falling at breathtaking speed. Although just as the Israelites were blind to the prophetic fulfillment of the arrival of their Savior 2,000 years ago, so is the 21st century church generally blind to the prophetic fulfillments that are happening right before our eyes. And the first prophetic action that marked the awakening from its long slumber was the reestablishment of Israel as a nation of Jews in its original and ancient homeland in 1948. Israel has always been and will be until the establishment of the Millennial Kingdom the place and the people where the Lord's prophecies are pronounced and where they come about. Without the existence of Israel, prophecy simply doesn't happen. So rather than begin our preparation for Joshua, by starting back at Genesis 1-1 and the creation story. We're going to begin a little later in the book of Genesis with the prehistory of Israel. This review that we're going to do is going to be fast moving, but also it's going to be done in a different style than the manner in which we studied Torah these past few years. It'll be general in nature, and it's going to be presented more like the telling of an epic story. So sit back and relax, but have your Bibles handy as we remember where Israel came from. And all this in preparation for our study of the books of Joshua, and then we'll move directly on into Judges. Well, Abraham is the best place to start. Because it was with him that God made an irrevocable covenant out of which the Hebrew people and the path of mankind's redemption would ultimately come.
And although Jews correctly consider him their forefather, sometimes he's even spoken of as the first Jew or the first Israelite. But since the term Israelite could not have happened until God changed Abraham's grandson's name from Jacob to Israel, and since the term Jew applies to the tribe of Judah, which was one of Israel's 12 sons, it would be pretty misleading to apply either the term Jew or Israelite to Abraham, except maybe in the most poetic kind of sense. Okay. Now, Abraham was born sometime around 2000 BC in an area historically known as the uh, Fertile Crescent. And the Fertile Crescent was called that because it lies in the floodplain between and along the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. And it was there that, that, that regular flooding occurred and it would deposit very rich silt along its banks. All right, and so they were able to grow crops abundantly. And Abraham lived, at least for a time, in the city-state of Ur, in a region called Mesopotamia. Today, Ur and much of Mesopotamia falls within Iraq's borders, all right, right next to the Euphrates River. Ur was the center of moon god worship. Okay, and much of that ancient city has been excavated. There's no doubt, as it's as to its identity and its location. Now, Abraham's father was Terah. We say Terah, okay? A descendant of Shem, who was one of Noah's three sons. You know, it had only been about 700 years that had passed since Noah and his family escaped the world-destroying deluge of water by constructing an ark. If you were alive in 2000 BC when Abraham was born, you could have asked Noah himself about the great flood because he was still alive when Abraham was living. Now about 200 years ago, a little over two centuries ago, a scholar invented a name for the countless descendants of Noah's son, Shem. And the scholar called them Shemites. We now say Semites. Okay, that name stuck. And genealogically speaking, Avraham was a Semite since he descended from Shem. Although he belonged to a culture that was very probably Amorite. Remember, that was a people who became the epitome of evil and that God wanted eradicated. Now, being a Semite identified Abraham, or anyone else for that matter, not to a geographical region or to a particular culture, but to this very large extended family that came from a very specific gene pool. Unfortunately, we most often hear the term Semitic today used in the phrase anti-Semitic. Right, having come to denote some type of predisposition or bigotry against the Jewish people. Now, during Abraham's era, some 4,000 years ago, civilization was in full swing, but it manifested itself very differently from region to region and even continent to continent. In Asia and in the Middle East, 
the area the Bible primarily concerns itself with. There were hundreds of tribes and clans, and most of them were nomadic to some degree or another. Where cities did form, they were generally what is called city-states. That is, they were basically very small nations with defined territories that were quite limited, and that territory usually didn't go much beyond the boundaries of the city walls. Typically, every city-state had its own king, it had its own set of gods. There were constant skirmishes between these city-states. Some of them were very serious, some amounted to very little, and usually it just involved stealing one another's possessions and livestock, idols, food, pasture lands. Sometimes it was taking people for slaves and for servants. The taking of people from another tribe or a nation was the common way that a king or a tribal leader of that era would more rapidly grow his own population, which would increase his personal security and his wealth and his power. Now, some cultures were tent dwellers, which meant that they wandered around a lot, moving typically from area to area to find fresh pasture lands and water for their flocks and herds. Others, the semi-nomadic, tended to stay in an area longer than their nomadic tent-dwelling neighbors. So they lived in non-portable huts, usually consisted of the local flora and fauna. And then again, there were these sedentary peoples, meaning they lived permanently in cities with governments and taxes, mud, brick, and stone houses. Yes, all this was in place when Abraham was born. They even had temples. They had sanitation systems back then. Most often, these several types of cultures that I just mentioned lived side by side and they were symbiotic. There were even small empires in existence as well as with the early Babylonian empire that's completely unrelated and unconnected to a later and different Babylonian empire, the one that the Jews were sent into exile in. Now in Abraham's time, only about 300 years had passed since the Tower of Babel. And of course that was when God scrambled a single human language into many so that humans would disperse over the, over the region and populate other geographical areas. All but a handful of the millions of descendants of Noah had by now turned their backs on God. Idolatry was rampant. Sex had become perverse. It had become part of religious ceremony. Child sacrifice was widespread. And in fairly quick fashion, since the destruction of the Great Flood, the world was once again thoroughly wicked. There were many relatively new spoken and written languages that had extensive and elegant vocabularies and alphabets. Nimrod was the best known leader of a widespread revolt against God that resulted in the construction of the Tower of Babel. And Nimrod is rightly credited with being the founder of what the Bible will go on to call the Mystery Babylon Religions. He built the first walled city after the flood. 
and is credited with modernizing the art of warfare. You see, Nimrod was a, of the line of Ham, who was the son of Noah. And Ham represents a line of people that began their wickedness within just a few years of stepping out of that ark. Okay. In fact, Nimrod was the son of Cush. This was the line that populated Africa. It might surprise you to know that the great Nimrod was a black man. Okay. And many ancient carvings bear this fact out. Nimrod married a woman named Semiramis. And after Nimrod died, his wife, Semiramis, deified him by declaring that he was the sun god. And she herself was worshipped as the queen of heaven and as the mother of Tammuz, who was the reincarnation of Nimrod. And this triumvirate of sun god father, queen of heaven mother, and reincarnated son would become the formula for nearly all the Babylon mystery religions of the future. That is, the pagan religions of the world right on up till today. We're going to find all throughout history and all cultures transliterated names and titles of Nimrod and Semiramis assigned to their own particular pantheon of gods. For instance, in Egypt, the queen of heaven was called Isis. In India, she was called Indrani. In Asia, Sibyl. In the ancient Middle Eastern lands, Ashtaroth, who we're going to see mentioned many times in the Old Testament. Now, as for Nimrod, he also became known as Baal and also known as the god-man Ninus, and credited as being the builder of the grand city of Nineveh. And since his son Tammuz is simply the reincarnation of, Tim, of Nimrod, Tammuz is also considered to be Nimrod. Hundreds of subcultures had erupted. Communication was well-developed. Clay tablets were being utilized as the primary writing medium for cuneiform now in Mesopotamia. But a long way southwest down to the African continent, at the mouth of the Nile, the Egyptians were using papyrus and reed stylus to write their hieroglyphics. Okay. Even building libraries for the growing volume of records. Trade routes were open from the Mideast to the Far East to India, even as far as China. Okay. These regions were not unknown to each other. They were very well connected. Okay. Trade was occurring amongst all these various cultures. Bronze was already well known. All right. And iron was just starting to be used sparingly. Egypt was already dotted with pyramids by the time Abraham was born. As a matter of fact, by the time Abraham was born, the pyramid building era was over. Okay. This was not a world of small thinking, primitive people that ate raw meat and lived like wild animals. 
Most of them were smart and aggressive and forward-thinking and constantly seeking ways to improve their technology and the quality of their lives. As a matter of fact, just to give you a reference in time, it was during this same time period that Abraham was born that much farther west at the Atlantic Ocean that an unknown people constructed a very strange structure that people today still puzzle over. Its name is Stonehenge. Okay. Abraham undoubtedly started life as a pagan. His father, Terah, was a merchant of idols. Okay. Standard idols of the mystery Babylon religions. Okay. It's likely that Abraham owned and worshipped a number of gods. Now, there is the remotest possibility, however unlikely, that he could have been one of the few that still believed in the one God that Noah spoke about. But that, as I said, is pretty unlikely considering all conditions. Certainly if Abraham had despised idols, it's not very easy to imagine him getting along well with his dad, who would have taught him otherwise. And it's also entirely conceivable that Abraham worshipped God Almighty along with some number of other gods. It's very hard to know because the spiritual mind of the people of that era had no problem with the idea of worshipping several gods and even adding one occasionally if he or she happened along. The people of Abraham's day tended to put their gods in a hierarchy with one of them being dominant and then all the rest following in kind of a celestial pecking order. Now one of the great curiosities of history is that it appears that atheism, this belief that there is no God, that there is nothing greater than man, is a modern concept. Because every ancient society ever discovered is found to have worshipped superior beings. Now, Abraham had two brothers, a very small family for that time. One of them died. Abraham married Sarai, Sarah, which was his half-sister. And we find out quickly that she was unable to give him children. And marrying family members was the norm for that day. In fact, it was preferred. And it wasn't forbidden by God, apparently. And for reasons we're not given, Abraham's father, Terah, gathers his family together and they leave the comforts and the security of, of the city life in Ur. And they travel north and west about 600 miles until they arrive at Haran. Now, why they stop there, we don't know, because the clearly stated original destination for the family, and this was where the father was heading, not Abraham, was... Canaan, about 400 miles to the south. Now, what Abraham did for a living there is anybody's guess. Though Genesis tells us that when he moved on, he took flocks and herds with him. So whatever he did, he was a pretty prosperous fellow. Now, one day when Abraham was about 75 years old, God reveals himself to him and tells him to leave Haran, but doesn't tell him where he's going. This probably had something to do with his very aged father and his surviving brother deciding to stay behind. So God now strikes a covenant, a unilateral contract 
with Abraham that if he will follow him, God will give him a land of his own. He'll bring forth a great nation from his seed. And from this, the whole world will be blessed. There's practically no information at all about Abraham prior to this time. And all things considered, he was probably a fairly ordinary person and as surprised as anybody at God choosing him to carry out this grand plan. Now, I've often wondered how God first gained Abraham's attention. It appears he did so by speaking to him, because that's the way the, the Bible presents it. Because as an Amorite, Abraham was surrounded by a number of idols and gods, and I doubt those pieces of wood or stone ever had a whole lot to say to him. So whatever God did to make himself known, it was spectacular enough that Abraham flat out believed it. Now Abraham took his wife Sarah and his lot, uh, rather his nephew uh, Lot, Lot, and of course this was the son. Lot was the son of Abraham's deceased brother. Okay, he was the nephew. Okay, he took a few servants, probably quite a number of cousins, and they all struck out for parts unknown. Now apparently he took a cue from where his father had intended to go, Canaan. And once he arrived, his first stop was at a place called Shechem, right, which today is known as the city of Nablus. Now, Canaan was not a city, uh, rather a country or a nation. It was just the name of a generalized region. Okay? It, it was used, the, the term Canaan was used very similarly as we talk today of the Middle East. Um, the widely scattered inhabitants of Canaan were called Canaanites and although there were ancient family ties between the residents of the various hundreds of city-states and villages in Canaan they were not a homogeneous people speaking of all the residents of the land of Canaan as Canaanites is roughly analogous to our speaking of all the inhabitants of the Middle East as Arabs. In reality, the so-called Arabs of the Middle East see themselves based on national identities. In other words, as Iraqis, Iranians, Egyptians, Syrians, Jordanians, whatever. Much as the Canaanites would have seen themselves more in relation to the city-state or the tribe or the king or the village that they belong to. Now, it's important to understand how the land of Canaan that the Lord would assign to Israel actually came about. Now, several hundred years prior to Abraham's birth, Noah had occasion to be humiliated by his son Ham, of whom, by the way, again, remember, Nimrod was descended. Ham wandered uninvited one day into his father's tent and he found him asleep, drunk, and naked. And Ham went out from the tent and informed his two brothers, Shame and Japheth, who promptly wandered in and covered up their father's nakedness, making sure that they didn't look upon him. And when Noah awoke and found that cloak over him, he was incensed. And he asked what had happened, and his sons informed him, and the irate Noah responded 
by issuing a curse on one of Ham's children. That child was Canaan. And the exact nature of the offense is unclear, and why the grandson Canaan took the brunt of Noah's anger were also left to ponder. And as with many biblical curses and blessings, the one Noah pronounced upon Canaan was prophetic in its nature. Some years after the incident, Ham's son Canaan left home. He left the home of his grandfather and his father, and he moved to a region far to the south that eventually became known by his name, the land of Canaan. And over the centuries, the descendants of Noah's other two sons, Japheth and, and uh, Shem, remained generally friendly and on favorable terms with each other. But the descendants of Noah's third son, Ham, through the specific line of Ham's son Canaan, became enemies of the descendants of Japheth and Shem. Many of the sons that Canaan spawned eventually spread out over the area. They grew and divided and became their own tribes. Then they established their own city-states and their villages. And in time, they warred with one another. Some 1,000 years later, we find those same descendants of Canaan who had stayed in the land uh, who had stayed in the land fighting to keep Moses and the Israelites out, continuing on to be a real thorn in the side of Israel. Tribes from other areas settled in that region. The Jebusites, Girgashites, Hittites, Hivites, and even the tribe Abraham originally belonged to, the Amorites, all eventually became enemies of Israel. Well, the location inside the land of Canaan that Abraham first stopped, as I'd said, was Shechem. And there at Shechem, it was God made his plan clear to Abraham. And as it was written in 12, uh, Genesis 12, verse 7, God said that this was the land that he was going to give to Abraham and his descendants. That's rather important because the world today places that exact spot in an area that we call the West Bank and says it does not belong to Israel. Abraham built an altar there, presumably made an animal sacrifice because that's what altars are for. Right. And after a very short stay, he moved on eventually all the way south to Egypt because a severe famine had come upon the land of Canaan. And after a run-in with Egypt's Pharaoh, in which Abraham gave up his wife Sarai to Pharaoh for a little while to avoid a confrontation, the famine ended Abraham took his family back to Canaan. And Abraham arrived back in Canaan a much wealthier man than when he'd left it because the Pharaoh thought... Abraham's God was a threat to him. So, he gave Abraham very valuable gifts that he would leave so that the Pharaoh down there wouldn't incur God's wrath. And though Abraham now had a lot of silver and gold, the family's real wealth was still their flocks and herds. And it was about this same time period, far to the north, back up in Mesopotamia, Abraham's birthplace, that thousands, maybe millions, mourned the death of Noah. 
Alright, that's right. The Noah of Noah's Ark died at over 900 years of age at about that time that Abraham went down to Egypt. Well, Canaan was a pretty tough place to live. It was very different than that fertile crescent where Abraham had come from. Everything was based on the soil, which meant it depended on the fickle rains. No rain, no crops, no pasture land, no survival. Which would explain why the Canaanites who lived there probably held the world record for the number of gods they had. They had a god for rain, a god for wind, a god for clouds, a god for barley. You name it, they had a god for it. But their chief god was that fella called Baal, who, as far as they were concerned, was Nimrod. At least he was the most popular god of them all. Well, despite these very difficult living conditions, Abraham and his nephew Lot prospered. And they prospered so much that they had a part company because their herds and their flocks were growing large enough and fast enough that they completely outstripped the land that they mutually occupied. And it caused disputes as a result among the herdsmen of each clan. And Lot must have liked the city life because he moved to a place called Sodom. It was somewhere near the southwestern bank of the Dead Sea. Now, a little bit later, some time passes, and without warning, peaceful old Abraham finds himself having to be a warrior leader. It seems that some kings, that is, the rulers of several city-states, from a region east of Canaan, decided to invade invade five Canaanite kings in the area where Abraham lived. And in that process, the invading kings sacked Sodom and Gomorrah. And that made Lot one of their prisoners. And of course, family being what it is, Abraham recruited 318 men, men and off they went to chase down these kings of the east in hopes of rescuing the Lord. And a few miles north of Damascus, that's right, Damascus, Syria today, they catch up to the raiders, they defeat them, they free Lot, they reclaim all their stolen booty. Okay. Abraham returns to the cheers of the people and the gratitude, of course, these five Canaanite kings. But he's also honored by this mysterious high priest and king of the city of Shalem. Centuries later, it will be called Yerushalem. His name is Melchizedek. It is Hebrew tradition, by the way, that Melchizedek was none other than Shem, son of Noah. And this is entirely feasible Okay. Melchizedek was, was really a title more than it was a name. In Hebrew, the title means king of righteousness. And although Shem would have been hundreds of years old by this time of this incident, the table of generations in the Bible indicates that Shem was indeed alive while Abraham was living in Canaan. Now, surmising that Melchizedek was actually Shem actually answers a lot of questions about this very obscure but most interesting Bible character, which later 
will be compared in some ways to Jesus Christ. Now we now arrive at an important point in the Bible where we find the first known use of the word Hebrew. And that term is applied to Abraham. No other ancient source uses the word Hebrew as the title of a specific group of people. There is a lot of conjecture as to the word's origination and its meaning. Some scholars think that it identifies a new culture. Another line of thinking is that the word Hebrew is a perversion of an ancient Sumerian word, haperu, which when spoken in ancient Semitic sounds, sounds very much like the word Hebrew. And it meant wanderers and outcasts, people that had no particular ethnic ties. Most Hebrew scholars almost unanimously say the word means one who crossed over. Literally referring to the way Abraham crossed over the Euphrates River in a journey to the south. But no doubt it also carried a a parallel spiritual meaning in that it is one who crossed over from worshipping false gods and therefore being against God to worshipping Yehovah and standing with him. Now, the, the issue of the origination of the word Hebrew revolves around whether the term was a religious or a racial one. Um, in any case, the Hebrew line begins with Abraham as its founder okay, and then on to his son Isaac and then on to his son Jacob and then finally to the 12 tribes of Israel. All of these are called Hebrews. Well, Abraham was now back in Canaan after a short stay in Egypt and having so long lived this, this, this lifestyle of being a nomad, he was in need of new pasture lands for his flock, so he moves on. And this time he backtracks a little bit. And he uh, settles rather at a desert oasis known as Beersheba. And his wife, Sarah, still hasn't given birth. And what is confusing to them is that implicit in God's promise to Abraham of making them into a great nation, obviously, is children. So Sarai's now very old. She's beyond childbearing years. And so she gives her maidservant, Hagar, to Avraham to bear him a child in her stead. This was completely normal and unusual for that era. Jewish tradition says Hagar was an Egyptian, probably the daughter of Pharaoh, that had been given to Abraham while he was down in Egypt. Hagar was one of the gifts Pharaoh gave to Abraham, probably as a peace offering. Anyway, Hagar becomes pregnant, and Sarah becomes jealous, and she treats Hagar so badly that she actually runs away, and God goes out and finds Hagar, convinces her to go back to the camp, promises her a boy child. She returns. Soon she gives birth 
to Yishmael. Well, before Hagar becomes pregnant, God formalizes his covenant with Abraham. And in typical Middle Eastern fashion, an animal is sacrificed and cut into pieces and it's divided into two piles. Okay. Then the agreeing parties walk between those two piles as an indication of their acceptance of the terms. But we're told that only God walked through the pieces of the animal. And this is an important detail because it says that the covenant that had been made between God and Abraham was unilateral. That means that Abraham had no duties to perform. Whatever was going to happen as a result of that covenant, it was God's responsibility. God would carry out the terms of that covenant regardless of what Abraham or his descendants did. That's why this covenant is often referred to, particularly by um, Paul, St. Paul, as a promise. God promised things to Abraham, but Abraham made no promises to God. It was at this point that Abraham was given the rights of male circumcision as the sign and seal of his everlasting covenant with the Hebrew people. Now, it is observed that, that, that circumcision is observed to this day. But let me comment that male circumcision was not unknown in those times. But it was also not known to have been associated with covenant making all right, until this incident. Well, a few years later, Abraham's elderly wife, Sarah, shocks everybody by becoming pregnant at the age of 90. And she gives birth to Isaac, Yitzhak. And although people at that time lived a little longer than perhaps than we do now, Sarah was still way beyond childbearing age. All right. And rather than now feeling satisfied, though, about this whole deal, Sarah doesn't like the competition. So she throws a fit and she demands that Abraham disown Hagar and that child, Ishmael, who is now 13 years old. Abraham complies. Out in the desert and near death, mother and son are rescued by God who tells Hagar that Ishmael is going to father a great nation. He's going to produce 12 princes. Ishmael is going to go on to become the forefather of the Arab races. And it's often erroneously, he's often re referred to by Muslims as the father of Islam. Okay. The dispute that began over Ishmael and Isaac brought about by Abraham and Sarah's disbelief and impatience is being played out before our eyes every day and these never-ending Middle Eastern conflicts. Now, it's most important that we pause here and examine for a moment a very key element of God's plan for mankind as outlined in Genesis, one that is apparently misunderstood even by many today in the church. And that most important element answers this question. Just exactly which of Abraham's descendants 
would be used to bring about the promises contained in the covenant made by God with Abraham. Which one? Islam says that God is going to bring about whatever his plans are for the world through Abraham's son Ishmael and Ishmael's descendants. Jews and Christians claim that God's divine plans will be carried on through the descendants of Abraham's son Isaac. Put into contemporary terms, which group is God's chosen people? The Hebrews from Isaac or the Muslims from Ishmael? Okay. This is a very distinct fork in the road that we just can't bypass. Although the world is trying very hard to bypass it. Okay. One direction is correct, the other direction is wrong. Okay. No amount of religious or political tolerance is going to bring about a compromise on this issue. Okay. The answer to this most fundamental question is found in Genesis 17. Open your Bibles to Genesis 17. We're going to read just a few verses. Genesis 17. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 15. I'm going to read from verse 15 through 22. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you're not to call her Sarai, mockery anymore. Her name is now to be Sarah, princess. I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. Truly, I will bless her. She will be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. At this, Abraham fell on his face and he laughed. And he thought to himself, will a child be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah give birth at ninety? And Abraham said to God, if only Ishmael could live in your presence. And God answered, No. But Sarah, will be, your wife, will bear you a son, and you're to call him Yitzhak. Laughter. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. But as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I have blessed him. I will make him fruitful and give him many descendants. He'll father twelve princes. I'll make him a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear you at this time next year. With that, God finished speaking with Abraham and went up from him. Write that one down. Circle it. You see, it's several years after Ishmael was born that this happened. And Abraham is very well satisfied that he has in Ishmael the male heir to his wealth and his tribe and most importantly to those covenant promises that God gave to him. But quite unexpectedly God appears and he tells Abraham that Sarai is going to bear him a son. And that this is the son that God is going to use to carry on the promises given to Abraham. And this startled Abraham argues against it. He says, God, please make it Ishmael that's the blessed one, my heir. Not this unborn child. I, mean, I don't have any allegiance to him. And Abraham's astonishment and disappointment is very understandable. First, 
Sarai is a very old woman. It just cannot be possible that she could conceive in that long dead womb of hers. How can that be? But second and most important to Abraham is that Ishmael is as much beloved and his one and only son. I mean, all of his hopes and plans for the future, he had rested in Ishmael. From the moment Hagar conceived, Abraham was overjoyed with the prospect of having a son, and that son was Ishmael. It is certain that Abraham told Ishmael, almost a teenager at the time, that God threw his curveball at him, all, right, all about God. And that someday Ishmael was going to carry with him God's incredible blessing and the plans that he had for mankind. Suddenly, without warning, God changes everything. I mean, Abraham falls on his face. He begs God that Ishmael remains the heir to the covenant. God emphatically said no. But then in his mercy, God told Abraham, don't worry about it. Ishmael would prosper. He'd be a great man. He'd... He would bear 12 princes, that is 12 tribal leaders, and have countless descendants. And that's exactly what's happened. Right? As the millions of members of the various Arab tribes that we see today are the result of Ishmael. But it would be Isaac, God said, the child to be born by Sarah who would carry on the promises of the covenant. Abraham was anything but happy with this new situation. But obediently he complied. It would be Isaac and his descendants, the Hebrews, that would carry on the promise first given to Abraham. Well, despite all of his human failings, in Genesis 15:6 we see that Abraham believed God and that God credited to him as righteousness. Now, while on the surface, it's wonderful to see God's understanding and mercy and grace in action here, there's something much deeper in this passage to consider. God has just given mankind his formula for personal salvation. That is, we're required to believe God, which means, in our modern lingo, trust him. Then he will credit us with righteousness. 700 years before Moshe, before Moses received the Torah on Mount Sinai, 2,000 years before Jesus was crucified, God revealed the only path to a right relationship with him. You must trust him. Well, we find that some years after Hagar and uh, Ishmael's desert ordeal Young Isaac now has his own near-death experience. Out of the blue, God orders Abraham to take Isaac to an altar on a hilltop and sacrifice him. I mean, how crazy is this? Can you imagine Abraham's thoughts? And by the way, let's drop this picture of a young little innocent child being let out for sacrifice. Isaac was 30 years old at this time. He knew darn well what was about to happen to him. Now, though it was certainly devastating, it wouldn't have seemed all that strange to Abraham 
to do this because human sacrifice to a god was pretty normal for that time. And particularly customary within the pagan tribes of Canaan. Abraham obeys. He takes Yitzhak to Mount Moriah, the place where the temple will be built some 900 years later. Okay. Today this place where he took, where Abraham took Isaac is called the Temple Mount, which is in the heart of Jerusalem. Moments before Abraham is going to plunge that flint blade into Isaac's chest, God stops him and he provides a ram, a male sheep, to be sacrificed in his stead. Another covenant follows, promising to bring forth many great nations from Isaac, millions of descendants. Well, this relieved father and son returns home. And Sarah, Isaac's mother, dies soon thereafter. Hebrew tradition says the cause of her death was the strain of Isaac's experience on the altar of sacrifice. Moms, I think you could understand that. Okay. In the city of Hebron, Abraham buys land with a cave on it. And that's where he buries Sarah. Well, Abraham is now very old. And so he appoints a trusted servant to find a suitable wife for his son, Isaac. And despite, or rather, Abraham despises the local Canaanite women. So he directs his servant to journey northward, back to the ancestral home up in Mesopotamia to find an appropriate member of Abraham's family for Isaac. And in the city of Nahor, the servant finds Rebekah, Rivka, the daughter of Abraham's brother Nahor. Now, though the place the servant went was named Nahor, it was not the namesake of Abraham's brother, but it was a distant relative of another name that it was named after. Nahor, if you'll recall, was the brother who had elected to stay behind all those years earlier rather than journey with Abraham down to Canaan. Well, about the time Rivka arrives back in Canaan to marry Yitzhak, Abraham dies at 175 years of age and he's buried alongside his beloved Sarah. Abraham, revered by Jew, Christian and Muslim, a man with many character flaws and weaknesses and all the other human attributes that trip every one of us up, loved and trusted God. And God blessed him for it. We'll continue our bird's eye view overview of the formation of Israel next week.